Hello, and welcome to a new podcast series focused on advancing equity in family planning. This podcast is a partnership between Power to Decide and the Reproductive Health National Training Center, with funding from the Office of Population Affairs and the Office on Women's Health. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of OPA or HHS. Throughout this series, we will explore tactics, programs, frameworks, and ideals to increase reproductive and sexual health equity in health centers across the country. Through this podcast, we hope to give Title X clinics, providers, and staffers practical, easy-to-access, action-oriented training resources in order to advance health equity at family planning service sites. My name is Dr. Reagan mcdonald Mosley, and I'm the CEO of Power to Decide, the Campaign to Prevent Unplanned Pregnancy. I have over 20 years experience in this field as a practicing OBGYN with a dedication and commitment to reproductive health and justice. Today, we have an amazing guest with us, Dr. Joya Creer-Perry. Dr. Creer-Perry is a physician, policy expert, thought leader, and advocate for transformational justice and maternal justice. As the founder and president of the National Birth Equity Collaborative, she identifies and challenges racism as a root cause of health inequities. In this episode, we're going to address the root cause of reproductive and sexual health inequities. So let's dive in. Dr. Joya, I'm so excited to be here with you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. Yeah, we're super psyched to have you. So I'm going to start with uh, just a little bit of statistics, and then we can dive in. Um, You know, over the last few years, there's been heightened awareness of maternal mortality in the United States and the disproportionate rate of death among Black women. African-American women die three to four times um, at the rate uh, compared to white women. Uh, Black women are more likely to experience preventable maternal death compared to white women. And Black women's heightened risk of pregnancy-related death spans income and educational levels. Dr. Joy, as you know, uh, this issue of Black maternal mortality and its impact on families and communities is not only a professional concern and passion for me, but also a personal one after having lost my dear friend, Dr. Shalon Irving, four years ago after she had her first child. Shalon was a PhD level researcher for the CDC and an advocate for health equity. So the sad irony of her death has garnered a lot of public attention. Um, But I think it's really important, of course, to center the impact, not just on society overall, but the impact for individual friends and family members, including Shalon's mother and her daughter, and to think of this issue magnified across the country for the countless preventable losses of Black mothers. So the first question I have for you to reflect on. So if we're going to create a more equitable healthcare system, we must be willing to name the roots of this inequity. And you have been really outspoken on this issue to name racism, not race, as sort of the root cause here. How do you see racism playing out in sort of the root cause of inequities in sexual and reproductive health care in the United States today? Well, thank you so much. And thank you again for bringing Shalon and her family and and, uh, Miss Irvin, her mother and her daughter into this conversation, because that helps us to humanize and remember why we're all here, grounding us in the importance of the work, that it's not some foreign, far off thing. Um, And truthfully, as you and I both, as we travel through medical school, when you're in residency in medical school and you're training and you learn every statistic is higher in black people. and, And you hear this disparities language constantly, the You know, um, I really feel like the gap between black and white women when it comes to maternal death, the only reason it garnered so much attention is because it was a new number 
we are accustomed to saying twice as likely, right? So black infant mortality is twice as high, obesity, premature birth, but somehow it captured the imagination of individuals when they heard that it was three to four times as high. And that increase is a mixture of both racism and patriarchy. So you get the fact that this country does not value women in general. So that root cause of white supremacy, also in addition to um, patriarchy, gives you the outcomes that we have. So it's so important for us to center the racism, the patriarchy, the white supremacy, and not focus on individuals and their behaviors and their choices, because it ignores the truth that we have a historical and a current belief of a hierarchy of human value based upon skin color, based upon gender, based upon religion, that is killing all of us, right? If believing that one group is more important or has different genes or different biology, that was taught to us in school. And so for so long, this biological basis of race or this cultural belief in a different valuation of race shows up in how we receive care. So you will see a person like Shalon, who is educated, who is working on these issues and who still is not seen as fully human and her concerns are dismissed and she is not um, able to survive her pregnancy. And this happens over and over and over again. So until we can be truthful about that, we're not going to have the outcomes that we need to have. And so we have to stop blaming and shaming individual behaviors and choices and really look at the root causes. Yeah, and I love that we, the way you're naming sort of the intersections of oppression in the hierarchy yeah. of our society. And, you know, the sad reality, right, is that these are things that we see in all aspects of our society. And so it's not surprising that we're seeing the impacts of racism, misogyny, patriarchy, transphobia in the healthcare system and then in health outcomes that have real life impacts, right, on people and how they experience the healthcare system and also how they ultimately live through the world and are able to lead healthy lives. Can you speak to some of the ways that the National Birth Equity Collaborative is sort of seeking to dismantle these systems of oppression or address them or highlight them? Yeah, well, one of them is things like this. You know, we do a lot of speaking engagements because the way we talk about Black bodies, gender nonconforming bodies has to change, right? So for so long, we've talked about as if the people were the things that are broken, like individual Black bodies were broken, people who weren't fitting into a, a, a binary of gender are broken, right? So this idea that there was, in fact, it was so pathologized that it was in our tech, it was disease, right? So like if a, if a person, a Black person who was enslaved wanted to be free, if they looked you in the eye, it was called drapedomania. It was in textbooks. You know, a professor, um, Dr. Cartwright at Tulane, where I trained, created that illness. So a lot of it is undoing this cultural belief and this harm um, of this hierarchy. So that's important. Next, we do a lot of research. So we have research right now that we're doing along with um, American College of OBGYN and Johns Hopkins School of Public Health to create a framework for respectful maternity care. So we're excited about that. Um, and we have interviewed Black working people around the United States to ask them what this standard would mean. Um, it's a term that's used globally. The WHO and others, um, White Ribbon Alliance, have been really working on respectful maternity care, but we have not operationalized that in any high-income country. We act as if having wealth makes you magically respectful. But we show with our outcomes in the United States that that's just not a fact. We have the worst outcome the industrialized nation, and we are not valuing and respecting women's bodies, their choices. Um, and so that's why we have the outcomes that we have. 
and we do um, trainings. So either we call them birth equity trainings, respectful maternity care trainings. You might call them implicit bias trainings, but really working with providers to ensure that they um, have the tools to, to unlearn a lot of the harmful things we were taught in school, including me. Um, and then lastly, we do um, a lot of policy and advocacy, working with state, local and federal officials to do things like improve access to doulas or access to birth centers or midwifery. Really, the tools what the people in the community are asking us for, we're working with them in their communities to get policies changed in order to do that. Wow, that's a lot. Thank you for all of the work that you're doing with the National Birth Equity Collaborative. One of the things that I find really um, challenging as I'm sort of talking about these issues and engaging providers specifically is undoing this concept of of race as a biological construct, right? And so we know race to be a social construct. I think if I just look at the myriad of colors in my own family, right, and sort of the uh, what that looks like, it, it's very obvious to me. But when I say that to, to providers and to healthcare administrators, like race is a social construct, I get a lot of pushback often. And people sort of pivot to the things that they learned that you referenced in their training. What about sickle cell disease? What about, you know, hypertension? What about all of these things that we see that where we've sort of biologically reified the concept of race? How do you talk uh, to people about this in a way that you feel like is more accessible to them? Well, I try to use myself as an example in my unlearning of this um, because people don't want to feel like you were, they don't, because, you know, providers, physicians, nurses, we all feel like we know a lot. And so it's challenging to challenge a core belief system, right? So we were all taught these hard, these things. We were taught these biological things. So if you're the shortcut um, in medicine is to make race be the, the intermediary for a conversation, right? So I use myself as an example because I'm unlearning a lot of things that I was taught. And so I think it makes it um, easier for people to hear it because I'm also showing my own learnings. Um, so um, for example, I was taught that there was three pelvises, gynecoid pelvis for white women, android pelvis for black women, anthropoid pelvis for Asian women, I think. And so when I when we start talking about the C-section calculator and undoing it, I can see where people don't want to let it go because they still, even if they know that that makes no biological sense, that there could possibly be no difference, no tie between my pelvis shape and the amount of melanin I produce, right? There can't be, that makes no biological sense to have the size of your lungs or your kidneys tied to how much melanin you produce. So the underlying um root of eugenics and white supremacy that colonized medicine is so deep that it's hard for us to unlearn and let go of those belief systems. The only thing that makes Black people different is you believing that they must have a different pelvis because they don't have a different pelvis. So then how do you unlearn that yourself and modify your own behaviors? Um, So that's, I hope, what's useful. I hope it seems to, every time I tell you, but I've never done a training where Someone hasn't come up to me afterwards and said, but I just can't. I mean, black people, um, people from all around the world, I do think the way we learn race in the United States is a very specific way. So when I'm talking to teaching international audiences, it can be a a different pushback as well. But we still have all kind of held these biological beliefs around um, how you can look at someone and tell just from their skin color diseases. You can tell if they're smart or not. Right. Think about that. Like there's so many things that we've tied to melanin production that actually don't make any biological sense. Yes. Yeah. One thing that I find can be helpful in sort of messaging around this is to contextualize this with an international Mm -hmm. setting, right? Like I am a light-skinned Black woman. Mm -hmm. Um, Here in the United States, you know, my class or caste is Black, right? But if I were to have grown up or lived in South Africa, 
I would have been categorized as colored and that okay. would have given me access to different resources, housing, healthcare, et cetera. If I was born and raised in Brazil, same person, same DNA, I would have been categorized as mixed. And again, that would have given me sort of different access to, to resources, right? So because of sort of how we cast people and because of our hierarchy, people have differential access to resources, education, healthcare, et cetera. And that is sort of what indicates their health outcomes, not just sort of the fact that of their DNA, that there's something biologically inherent or intrinsic to them, right? You know, you know, it's funny. Um, I do the same thing, but I also bring in New Orleans so I can use so you can do international and then show how in the United States Creole people were codified to be able to go to school, get jobs. It was by law. We have a similar caste system right here. And I, I'm always fascinated by the difference because my friends who are now were Creole whose parents um, were able to buy things. They run from that title. Right. So they're like, no, I'm just black <laughs> because they don't want to be seen as the harmful folks. They don't want to be seen. But their parents and grandparents were able to go to school when they when, when the people who were considered black couldn't. They were able to um, buy property, own things. So you still see that lighter skinned black people in New Orleans have more wealth because of this history and legacy of racism and the codification of Creole as a separate caste versus black in the United States of America. Mm, that's a really important example. And I think, you know, you brought up a really good point, right? Which is sort of how we've been trained to think of, you know, different pelvises as being associated with different races and this idea of the C-section calculator, which incorporates in, in terms of a number of variables, including age and parity, race, right? And this is an example of, of like further reifying the sort of concept of race, because if, if we think that there's something different about people based on their race that sort of increases or decreases their risk of C-section and then make decisions based on that, then when we look back 10 years from now, then we're going to see, oh yeah, Black women have much higher rates of C-sections without really identifying. That's because we made those decisions assuming that they had a higher rate of C-section because of something sort of about their anatomy or their biology, when in fact, right, the higher risk of C-section has nothing to do with intrinsically who they are or what their pelvis is or their capacity to give birth vaginally, but everything to do with the healthcare system and the providers in the healthcare systems doing rates of C-sections among Black women for other reasons, including their race. You know, it was hard to, because we've been having this fight about this calculator for a few years now publicly. And I think if, you know, the, the, People who created it um, recently withdrew it and asked people to stop using it. I don't, they don't really have the capacity to make people stop using it because that's not how our healthcare system works. And it's already been put out there. And um, same thing with prostate cancer. Like we have higher rates, all these things we have higher rates of. I mean, I was taught in medical school that we had higher rates of breast cancer in Black women. And they say it like it's just a fact. So you start with the disparity as a fact. You ignore the structural oppressions that cause a disparity. So I don't even use the word health disparities. I use health inequities because I have so often had many people say, of course, they're disparities. People, the word disparity means different and there are always going to be differences. But the problem is health disparities embed and come from health inequities, which were created by policies. So yes, there's a difference between breast cancer rates in men and women because women have more breast tissue than men. Um, but that, so that is a disparity. But an inequity is that Black women die more frequently from breast cancer because we have less access to treatment, less access to, um, to screening. Um, we are more likely to not be able to be off from work in order to go and get a screening and to get treatment. And so we don't contextualize the inequities when we used to focus on the disparities or the differences. That's powerful, that paradigm, and really differentiating inequities versus disparities. 
so acknowledging how hard this is, right? Just based on we're pushing back against really centuries of, of teaching and, and structural racism. But how can institutions and health centers, in your opinion, address structural racism embedded in their own you know, workplace practice and systems? And are there organizations that you have encountered who are doing this evaluation well and who have been able to enact noticeable change because of their work? Well, the first thing is it's hard and it's long. And so I don't want any health system to think I'm going to do a 90 minute podcast or webinar. And now we've fixed everything and we can move on to the next issue. Um, I usually start my trainings with this graph that shows, you know, that 86 percent of the 400 years that black people have been in the United States has been under legal, meaning explicit by law, racism, structural inequities. You know, we could be owned, raped, murdered, lynched. Um, and so we can't run from that truth. And so it's going to take us a long time to undo that and unlearn that. So that's the first. Give yourself some grace for the act of trying. So we are in it's urgent, but it's going to be a long term strategy. Right? Um, secondly, uh, you have to start with some truth telling. So if you are in a center, what is the context of your community? Like um, the context in Baltimore is different from the context in um Bogalusa, Louisiana. I love saying Bogalusa because it's a small town that I know pretty well in Louisiana and I like the name, right? But so there are some activities and some things like people know Johns Hopkins and they know the lax story and they, you know, so they know these bigger things, but there's actually some local context in your community that has happened around inequities that you might not know. If you're a center, you need to really spend the time to figure that out, right? Because that's the hot trauma that people are bringing into your centers. So if you say, my, why won't they come? But you don't know that, people in the community um, have, there was a person died or that someone, you know, believes there's, there's a lot of things that happen between communities and healthcare delivery that a lot of times healthcare delivery systems have no idea what the community actually believes about them, understands about them, takes to heart. In New Orleans, there were hospitals that black patients knew not to go to. Um, they knew that they were going to be treated poorly. If you don't know that as the ethos of your, that that's what people believe about you, you're not going to be able to take good care of them. Then you have to undo that. And so finally, when you figure that out, so work on yourself, learn for yourself, have your individual providers, front desk staff, clerks, it's not just the, the people who are directly doing service provision. The front desk matters, who answers the phone matters. We have to unlearn a lot of things, uh, behaviors around um, birthing people and people of color together. Then you can work on a collective action with the community, but you have to first unlearn things yourselves, work with the, each other, um, within your center and then, you know, go out to the community and say, hey, OK, we, we work on ourselves. Now we want to learn from you. How should we be better? We start with usually as centers going out to the community and saying, I want to come and work with you. But you have not unlearned the harmful things or learned more about them to do that well. So start first with you. It's a long way to say that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So you spoke, you know, about the paradigm of, of differentiating between inequities and disparities. You know, we have an audience of, of Title X providers out there. Um, how can we encourage them or what would you recommend they do to think about dismantling, dismantling inequities in their own um, institutions and health centers? Oh, I mean, so we have this whole um, work body of work that we're working on. And we honestly called it in the beginning, defund family planning. And it freaked everybody out. Um, but it got their attention to think about why would we even be saying that? So what you could start with is why do you call it family planning? What is the intention of family planning? Where is the history and legacy? When did it start? If you knew that it started under Nixon and it was a anti-poverty strategy, did it work? 
are people of color less poor because of family planning? And the answer is no. Right? People of color are less poor when they have access to jobs and education. So we are really trying to reframe our work. If you were inside of Title 10 and your goal is to create reproductive health equity, to work on reproductive and sexual well-being, how do you operationalize that? So reframing even your job. So, so often we would do um, trainings with nurses who are doing um, family planning clinics, rethinking, reimagining that their job is not encourage people to plan a pregnancy, but their job is to encourage people to have access to jobs, to access to their dreams, to work on whatever their needs are. They might not ever want to have a child or they might want to have 10. Your place is not to help them plan that. Your place is to support them along their decision making, to help them have the power that they need in order to make those decisions. And that changing that orientation to how you think about your role um, inside of reproductive health and um, and sexual well-being. Like, do you talk about sex and pleasure? Do we have an opportunity to know that um, sex is not just for reproduction? Are we really allowing for the full breadth? We talk about infertility, right? Um, people inside of Title X also want desire pregnancies. Are we helping them with making the families however along the spectrum they wish? That would be an amazing opportunity for us to really reframe how we think about reproductive and sexual well-being. I love that. I love that. Centering reproductive well-being and sexual health and and uh, dismantling the paradigm of, of the paternalistic provider yes. sort of dictating what the, the patient does or what they need and really thinking of us as a mechanism to help people live their best lives and access their dreams. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. A couple of other action items I would recommend. I've been working in, in Title X clinics providing uh, direct patient care for the last um, 20 years now. Hmm. Uh, getting old. <laughs> but <laughs> what I would recommend is just, you know, and something that you've been outspoken on is measurement. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like you, you can't name the problem and create an action plan to address it if you're not looking at your outcomes. And so I would recommend that people really look specifically at their quality measures. Hopefully they're doing some some um, measures of their of their patients in terms of patient satisfaction and other quality measures. But look at that data and stratify it by race. Mm-hmm. And if you see differences by race, you know, assume that there is an element of racism involved and think of how you can sort of address that through training and through highlighting that for your staff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then making sure that you're centering equity and, and training about these important issues. These conversations are hard and it may take multiple times to, for people to be exposed to the concepts of race as a cultural construct versus mm-hmm. a biological construct. Um, but we have to do the work and we have to center that and prioritize it. And I know that's challenging given all of the, the Title X um, requirements. Um, but this needs to be a priority for us to be able to provide equitable um, services. I am, um, you know, and I and I love that. So I, the reason I honestly don't start with measurement is because if you don't change how you think about the patients or how you think about the work, you're going to measure the wrong things. And I'll give you a great example that Title X did for the last few years when we were talking about, well, not Title X, reproductive health in general, when we started talking about, so if we start with immediately measuring the how we're going to keep people from getting pregnant versus how, how do people have access to what they want? Are they desirous of pregnancy and we're supporting them no matter if they if we think that they shouldn't be getting pregnant or not, right? And so when I'm going to give you a concrete example, when is it going to be acceptable for a rural um, patient who is uh, has on Medicaid as their payer for their insurance to say to you out loud that they're trying to get pregnant. 
Right. So that's there's never so they, it's socially not acceptable. And so yeah. then therefore we're going to give them, you know, an IUD. But first, truthfully, that person might be an amazing mother and they do a great job. And it's not our place and our job to dictate that for them. So just thinking about when we're measuring that we're measuring for well-being. And I know the power to decide has a great um, definition for um, reproductive well-being. Make that be the frame in which you um, pick your measurements, not pick it based upon control or eugenics or population. That's my ask. (laughs) Yep. I think that's exactly right. Centering reproductive well-being and making sure that we're measuring the right things, measuring whether or not people are able to get the care that they want and have the care that aligns with their their dreams and their visions for what they see in the world. That's right. Anything else you want to share with our audience of Title X providers? No, I just, Joya, this has been amazing. It has been amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we need y'all. We need y'all to have more money. Um, we need you to think. So we're fighting for that. <laughs> we recognize that um, the full range. If, for example, if we were doing well-being, you would get to do things like yoga in your Title X centers. You would, and we would be paid for, it, and it should be because we know when people have high resource, they get to take yoga and they have more well-being. So let's do that together. Let's work on a world where Title X gets to really invest in the things that we know create wellness um, for all people. That's it. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. Um, and for this informative discussion, uh, we hope you will all walk away with not only a better understanding of how to advance equity and family planning, but also actionable steps that you can en- enact today. To follow <laughs> the work of Dr. Freer Perry, please follow her at Dr. Perry, at D-O-C-C-R-E-A-R Perry, and at Birth Equity at Twitter. And to stay connected with me, follow me at, at Dr. Reagan on Twitter. And please follow Power to Decide at at Power to Decide on all platforms. This yeah. podcast was produced as a partnership between Power to Decide and the Reproductive Health National Training Center. Learn more at rhntc.org.